place. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Maria F, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I'm from County Dublin in Ireland, and I'll be your host for today's study. Our co-hosts today are Sue, L, Audrey, N, and Johanna. If you have any questions or any concerns during the meeting, please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts, and you can do this by private message in the chat function. Please note that our speaker today, Harlan G, will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the Q&A sessions which follows, that will not be recorded. We put a link to the previous recordings in the chat function. We are currently on week number 102. Wow. We'll ask that if you could please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also, <clears throat> please turn off your video if you're exercising, if you're eating, or if you need to step away from the screen for any reason. Otherwise, we'd really love if you do keep your camera on so we can all see each other. So as much as possible, that'd be great. We also ask that if you could please refrain from the use of the chat function while the meeting is going on. Um, and even if, if it's to message other attendees privately, just so that we could all be present with each other here today. So we'll now turn over to Harlan G in Scottsdale, Arizona. Good morning, Harlan. <laughs> Thank you, Maria. Thank you so much. And I hope everybody's well today. Thank you for joining me this morning. And I say this a lot, but I really, really look outside here in Scottsdale. I hope it's as gorgeous where you are as it is here. It is just absolutely a stunning summer afternoon here in Scottsdale, Arizona. I'm also very excited to announce to you today that the contract on the OA birthday live and in person has been signed. And that will take place over Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday weekend in January of 2023. So that will be the 13th, 14th, and 15th of January in Los Angeles, California. I hope sincerely that every one of you will be able to attend in person. It's gonna be outrageously fun. Uh, I'm going to get in on Wednesday night so I can play with some of you on Thursday and on Friday and then Friday night at seven o'clock, the convention will begin. Uh, so I hope that you will be there if it's at all possible and it is a really safe environment. It's OA and we, we're just going to love you. We're not going to, you know, nothing else. We're just going to love on you. And if you will, we'll let you love on us too. I hope to see you there. Also in July, uh, July next month, which is right around the corner, we are going to miss a day. And the day that we're going to miss is July the 23rd, I believe, because in July, I am going to flag, yeah, the 23rd, we will not be in this form format. I'm going to be in Flagstaff, Arizona. Just to let you know, if you're in a hot weather part of the country, Flagstaff this morning is 28 degrees cooler than Scottsdale. And it is just gorgeous up there. We are at 108 so far today. They are at 80. So they're 28 degrees cooler. And it's just like a little piece of the Pacific Northwest in Northern Arizona, right? Not too far from the South Rim of the Grand Canyon breathtaking, breathtaking state, Arizona. And anybody that comes, we're gonna be on the campus 
of Northern Arizona University. We're gonna be in the dormitories and we're gonna have our meetings in the university and it's just gonna be fantastic. So I hope to see some of you at Flags in Flagstaff, Arizona. When we get going, we're gonna be on page 37, the bottom of the page, our behavior is as absurd, but as is my want, I wanna just kind of bring us back up to speed. And what we are in is the chapter more about alcoholism. And the chapter more about alcoholism is a chapter that is the last chapter that is dedicated to the study of step number one. The original title of this chapter was more truth about alcoholism, but they weren't real comfortable with the word truth because we are not scientists. We are not experts in the field of alcoholism. So they kind of wanted that word dropped and it did get dropped. Bill was more than willing to make the compromise. Bill wasn't as compromising as he himself would like to make you think. History doesn't bear out that he was as, he was as uh, uh, quick to compromise as, uh, as some think. But this was something that he did compromise on. And the chapter of the title today remains more about alcoholism. Much of the chapter is derived from a book that was written in 19, and published in 1930, uh, nine years before the big book. And it was called The Common Sense of Drinking. And it was written by an alcoholic named Richard Peabody. And Richard Peabody penned the book the common sense of drinking, and he died of his own alcoholism in 1936, just about one year after Bill met Bob in Akron, Ohio, in the Cyberling Gatehouse is when uh, Peabody died. So important is this book, The Common Sense of Drinking, that Bill Wilson's copy of the book is in the AA archives as we sit here this morning. And Bill Wilson's copy of that book was very important because from Peabody, we learn certain things that are integral to the study of alcoholism. And it is very, very important important that we keep these things at the forefront of our consciousness. And how do we do that? By constantly trying to remember them? That won't work very well because of the mental blank spot, the built-in forgetter. The way that we remember these things, if you want to take a tip, is to teach it incessantly to other people. And when you teach Remember what Clancy Immeslin bequeathed us with. He, Clancy Immeslin is one of, if you, if you haven't been around my big book studies or my uh, meetings during the week out of Scottsdale, Clancy Immeslin is one of my favorite circuit speakers. I love his podcasts. He teaches through humor. He teaches through common sense uh, examples. And he's a wonderful, wonderful teacher. Uh, he also was a very good example of this program because he stayed sober from 1959 up until the time of his death just a few years ago. And he stayed sober and sponsored many, many, many people, some of them very, very famous, but he was a good example. He said, you don't learn this program by absorbing spiritual information. You learn this program by transmitting spiritual information. 
And these are some of the things that Clancy left us with when he left this world. You know, when he died, it's not unlike all these old timers, when they die, it's like a museum going burned to the ground and you can't retrieve a lot of the artifacts because so much of what they knew was inherent to their souls, inherent to their psyche and their brains, that it was just, it's just a shame that we have to lose them. But what it does is it opens up opportunity for us to step in and fill the breach as best we can. But I don't think anybody will ever fill Clancy Immeslin's shoes. They're just too massive, too big, too giant and too wonderful for anybody to ever, ever fill that breach. He was definitely one of a kind. I had the opportunity of meeting him twice and he had two very private, very wonderful conversations with him that I will never forget. I had him right here at the North Scottsdale Fellowship Club when he came to speak. Anyway, we are dreamers by nature. We are dreamers. And in the midst of our pain and in the midst of our suffering, we remain dreamers so much of the time, always fantasizing about when this happens, this will happen. When that happens, this will happen. And one of the things that I fantasized about a lot in my life is when I get thin, when I get older, when this happens or when that happens, maybe someday I'll be able to look like the other guys or I'll be able to do this, this or this. And the unfortunate reality, the sad reality and the brutal reality is, is that the longer we have this disease, as each day turns, as each day turns into night, the disease does not get better. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse. No matter how hard we tried, we couldn't stem the tide of this horrible, nightmarish condition. And no matter how much we wanted to be thinner, no matter how much we wanted to stop vomiting or using laxatives or exercise to perform bulimia, no matter how much the scale did not reflect our true intentions and wishes, no matter how much life got by us, no matter how much pain we suffered, we remained dreamers. And the dreamer part of us always would fantasize about someday, someday, and someday turned into worse and worse and worse. So we often blamed God, we blamed others, and ultimately blamed and condemned and hated ourselves for not being able to do what so many other people could do with such relative ease. It says in the big book that we watch them eat with impunity. What does impunity mean? It means they didn't get punished. P impunity comes from the same word punis as the word punish. Impunity and punish are from the same root word. And I watched my friends for decades and decades of my life. And they, we would go out to eat or we would go whatever. And they would say, who wants to split a salad? Who wants to split a hamburger? I'll split your head open if you keep that up. I'll take a jackhammer to your skull if you keep talking like that. Trust me, just challenge me and see if this knife isn't sticking out of your eye in about three seconds if you keep that up. And so we watch them eat half a hamburger and maybe a few of the French fries on the plate 
and they would signal to the waitress to take it away, they were done. Oh, how we wanted to be those people, huh? Oh, how we wanted to be those people, but the day never came. And so we remained dreamers in the midst of a nightmare that we couldn't control, we couldn't, we didn't cause, and we couldn't cure. So let's take a look at the bottom of page 37. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna expose this disease for what it is. We're gonna look at the jaywalker. One of the quintessential stories of this book is the jaywalker. Why is it so important? Because it illustrates for us the fact that no matter how long we have the disease, how dire the consequences of the disease mount up, no matter how many consequences we suffer, the disease gets worse and worse in the most unmerciful, most inhumane, and most insulting way possible. We were nice people, or so we thought. Why was God doing this to me? Why was life doing this to me? Wouldn't it be better off if I were dead? Wouldn't it be better off if I just kept eating and died like they all told me was going to happen? Because after a while, I saw no point to living and I saw no point to dying. I couldn't live with the food. I couldn't live without the food. Life was lonely, full of self-doubt, self-recrimination, self-loathing. And in the midst of all that craziness was also plain insanity. Let's take a look at page 37 and let's examine this monumental story of the jaywalker. Our behavior is as absurd and incomprehensible with respect to the first drink of, as that of an individual with a passion, say, for jaywalking. What is jaywalking? And by the way, I'm going to put up my jaywalker as my background today because I should have done that before. Anywho, but I have a jaywalker background that I should have put up before. So I'm going to put him up there while we're talking. What is jaywalking? Jaywalking is just very, very simply crossing the street in the middle of the street. And that's all it is. It's not anything special. It's not anything, you know, there's my little jaywalker. You can see he's drunk and you can see he's crossing in the middle of the street, not in the crosswalk. And he's, that's my little jaywalker. He gets a thrill out of skipping in front of fast moving vehicles. He enjoys himself for a few years in spite of friendly warnings. Up to this point, you would label him as a foolish chap, top of 38, having queer ideas of fun. Luck then deserts him and he is slightly injured several times in succession. So now he's getting a little older. He's getting a little slower. This is a really weird kind of way to have some fun. And he is getting hurt here several times in succession. So you would think, well, let's take a look at the story. You would expect him, if he were normal, to cut it out. Now, I am 68 years old, and so are most of my friends, not all of them. Uh, but most of my friends that I went to high school with are 68. Some are 67, some are 69, whatever they are. But when we were about 50, 55, I took a look at some of these guys and holy mackerel, they weighed more than me. 
because we were in our 50s and they were always as thin as a stick. And all of a sudden they started getting bellies on them. And I thought to myself, what the heck is going on here with these guys? So you know what some of them, not some of them, all of them did? They cut back on their food voluntarily and successfully, they cut back on their food and they started hitting that gym. And by darn it, that those pounds melted away. But I couldn't do that in my life. I couldn't cut it out, so to speak, in my life, but they could. So let's see where we go from here. Presently, he's hit again. See the progressive nature of the disease. No matter how great the need, no matter how great the wish, his disease of the jaywalker is getting worse and worse and worse, no matter what's happening. This time he has a fractured skull, very, very uh, serious consequence here. He has a fractured skull. Within a week after leaving the hospital, a fast moving trolley car breaks his arm. So within a week of getting out of the hospital, he is out there again, trying to jaywalk in front of a trolley car. Wow, what a goofball this guy is. By the way, here's a trivia question and the answer. What is the only national monument that moves? What is the only national monument that moves? Answer, the cable cars in San Francisco. They are the only national monument that moves. All the rest of them stay where the, the Mount Rushmore and the White House, they stay put. They don't move. Okay. He tells you he has decided to stop jaywalking for good. Damn it, this time I'm going to go on a diet. I'm going to be a vegan. I'm going kosher. I'm going vegetarian. I'm going gluten-free. And everybody hears him make these exclamations and they think, by George, he's got it. Do you remember when Bill Wilson told Lois in Bill's story, he was going to stop drinking. And for a while he did. And he renewed his wife's hope. Only this time, what happened? He came home drunk again. And when the big book wants to teach us something, it never teaches us something just once. It teaches it to us repeatedly because it knows that like any good teacher, the, the real teaching comes in the form of repetition. That's called spiraling the information. The teacher spirals the information to drive it into your head through repetition. Very, very important. We see Bill Wilson doing that with Lois, and now we see the jaywalker making those same oaths. He tells you he has decided to stop jaywalking for good but in a few weeks, he breaks both legs. So no matter how much he wanted to stop, the disease got worse and worse and worse. And no matter how much he wanted to stop, the disease kept overtaking him. And he was getting something from jaywalking that nothing else could give him. Does this sound familiar? Parallel it to a Reese's peanut butter cup parallel it to french fries, pizza, whatever you want to parallel it to, no matter how much I realized that 
French fries and pizza and milk duds were ransacking my life. They were making my life unlivable. They were making me unsightly, unhealthy. They were making me uncomfortable. They were doing things to me that I did not want done. I kept eating them anyway because they were doing something for me, not to me, for me that nothing else could do. They were giving me the effect. And when the food worked, it worked like magic. And it brought me to a place of peace for about nine, 10 seconds. The world and all of my troubles went away and I could live and breathe for about 10 seconds, nine seconds. And all of my troubles seemed to go away. The only problem with that is that it also triggers the physical allergy and it makes it impossible to stop once I have started. See, I've said this before, if that wasn't, if I didn't have the physical allergy, I would carry around M&Ms with peanuts. I don't know who's buying these other M&Ms. Obviously these are not Jewish people, but the other M&Ms, whatever, they, whatever allure they have for others, never made it with me. But the ones with peanuts, I would buy like a, a uh, pouch, like those fanny packs, and I would keep M&Ms in there, and I would pop one in my mouth like a Xanax every time I felt any kind of a feeling, and that would have worked fantastically. The only problem was the M&Ms trigger the physical allergy so that I could not stop once I've started. But let's go back to the jaywalker. And what we're looking here as is the insanity and the progressive nature of the disease. The progressive nature means it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. No matter how much he wants it to get better, it's going in the opposite direction, just like my eating disorder did from the day I was born, no matter how much I wanted it to get better and better, it got worse and worse. And in the midst of the torture of this disease, I remained a dreamer, a fantasizer, a person removed from reality, a romantic. One day, I'll show them, one day, I'll be thin. One day, I won't have this anymore. When this happens or that happens, maybe one day I'll be okay. And it never happened until I got into recovery and worked the steps like my hair was on fire. Let's continue. On through the years, this conduct continues, accompanied by his continual promises to be careful or to keep off the streets altogether. In other words, I'm going to go on a diet Monday. I'm going to go on a diet on the first. I'm going to go on a diet tomorrow. I'm going to go on a diet. You can fill in the blanks. And no matter how many times I said that I was going to go on a diet, no matter how many times I swore to God, to myself, to my friends, and to anybody listening, that I'm going to willpower myself into being different, 
the disease kept getting worse and worse and worse. And it defied every effort that I made to make it better and better and better. Let's continue. Finally, he can no longer work. Progressive nature of the disease. Now he can't make a living. His wife gets a divorce. It's affecting his home life. Does this sound like, does this sound like the um, page 52? The, uh, what do you call it? The um, bedevilments? I couldn't think of it. Does this sound sort of like the bedevilments? We couldn't make a living. Our, our domestic life sucked. Our, we couldn't, our, our relationships were te terrible. Yeah, it's a parallel to the bedevilments on page 52, which is a parallel to the common sense that we look at when we see what the consequences of this disease are. He is in a place he does not want to be, and he's getting dragged kicking and screaming into it because he doesn't have the necessary power. He doesn't have the power to resist the impulse to jaywalk. He, I don't have the necessary power. Remember, lack of power, that's our dilemma. And on page 45 of the book, in the chapter, We Agnostics, it's going to talk about <clears throat> the main object of this book is to help you find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. So we see that without this power, his life is getting worse and worse and worse. And the pain and the hell is spreading to his wife and his children. His wife gets a divorce and he is held up to ridicule. I was held up to ridicule. I was an object of ridicule. People made fun of me wherever I went. I was like a circus sideshow. Now, many of you are not in that category. Many of you can pass for normal in a public setting. You never weighed the kind of numbers that some of us weighed, but it doesn't matter. You ridiculed yourself. You ridiculed yourself and you condemned yourself and you did a number on yourself, which was as evil and as abusive as anyone else could have done to you because you were inhumane in the way that you spoke to yourself because you couldn't control this disease. The three C's can't control it, didn't cause it, can't cure it. So let's take a look now at the progressive nature of the disease. He tries every known means of getting the jaywalking idea out of his head, not his body, his head. And what are those means? He's gonna have the urine of pregnant women shot up his rear end. And I went to meetings in the late 70s and early 80s, and that was a big, big fad. We would see people squirming in their chair in the meetings, and they'd be squirming in their chair because they had just been to the doctor and had the urine of pregnant women shot up their butt. And this was supposed to kill their appetite. I don't think so. 
Then acupuncture became very, very prevalent. And you had people pulling on their ear. If you've ever seen the Carol Burnett show, she pulled on her ear to signal to her grandmother, I'm thinking about you, Grammy. Well, they, I think they forgot a couple of times to pull on their ear because they were getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger in the face of this thing in their ear. And then you had people, this was prevalent for a while, they were going to a doctor or a dentist, I think it was a dentist or an oral surgeon, and they were getting their jaws wired shut. That was another thing that was prevalent back when I came into OA. You see, when I came into OA, OA was a very different program than it seems to be today. And who do I credit for the advancement in a lot of the recovery? I credit Vision for You. I credit Vision for You, which I consider to be the renaissance of OA. I think Vision for You got everybody back on track 12 years ago, 13 years ago, and brought us back to a pure big book recovery. But when I came into OA, there were a lot of people that were doing all these various things within OA to lose weight, urine, wired jaws, uh, obviously, the diet pills that I was on as a child, those were still floating around out there. We had all kinds of different methods of losing weight and all kinds of methods that people were going to use to try to stem this disease. And we see the jaywalker. Do I relate to the jaywalker? You bet that I do. I relate to this jaywalker right down to the letter of the law. It is absolutely my story. No matter what happened in my life, no matter how nightmarish, I kept eating more and more and more, all the while fantasizing about being thin and eating more and more food. How was that supposed to happen? I don't know, but in my crazy mind, in my lunatic mind, I was gonna eat more and weigh less. I was gonna eat more and weigh less means I am insane. I am not a sane person. And that's why I need a power greater than myself to restore me to what? To sanity, to sanity. I need someone to restore me to sanity. And I looked on earth for that person and I couldn't find him. I looked for God. And today I don't overeat so far. I mean, maybe I'll eat milk, milk duds late. I don't know. But so far today, I have not done that. And I'm, I'm at a, a weight that my cardiologist is great, very good with. My blood work is immaculate. I've been taken off some medications. Uh, I do have an increase in my cholesterol medication. That's That happens, unfortunately, that does happen, but I'm not on high blood pressure pills. I'm, I walk three miles a day, six days a week, and I'm as relatively healthy and very definitely alive. And I have been I have been in a situation where doctors have been signing my death warrant since I was a child. Doctors have been signing my death warrant since I was a little boy, screaming, yelling at my mother, 
putting me up on amphetamines when I was nine years old. And I'm not saying I'm glad someone died, but Marilyn Monroe died in 1962. And by 1963, some of this information on how she died started unraveling. And that a big culprit were these amphetamines for the for, for weight control. And I got pulled off one amphetamine. And when I was 10, they put me on another amphetamine. I'm not saying, oh, I'm glad Marilyn Monroe died. No, I'm not. I got, I don't, I didn't know Marilyn Monroe from the front door. And she she didn't bother me, but it was through her death that some of this information started unraveling and became more apparent to not only the medical profession, but to the public at large, because she had died in such a crazy way. And a big culprit were these diet pills that she was taking. Why she needed diet pills, I couldn't tell you, I don't know. But anyway, he shuts himself up in an asylum. Now, don't, don't picture a hospital, because a hospital is very antiseptic and it's friendly and it's nice. An asylum, bars on the windows, you can't leave. You know, they, they can punish you. You're kept there against your will. It's a dreadful place, dreadful. He shuts himself up in an asylum, hoping to mend his ways. But the day he comes out, he races in front of a fire engine, which breaks his back. Such a man would be crazy, wouldn't he? And if you look at my life, if I had a video camera of me eating food behind dumpsters in the freezing cold of a Chicago winter, littering wherever I went, I would throw the bags of garbage out the car window. I didn't want anybody to know that I was eating chicken or eating fries or like they couldn't tell, right? I had the shiniest steering wheel in the United States because the bottom part of my stomach would clean the steering wheel because it was butted right up against that steering wheel. My, the back of my seat was broken because I couldn't fit in a normal car seat. I had to deliberately break the car seat so I could drive from almost the back seat of the car because I couldn't fit in a normal car. I could barely get in. I could barely get out. I could barely fit. I couldn't walk. I couldn't wear clothes from a normal store. When I bought pants, I bought the largest size they had and brought the pants to a tailor. And the tailor would put a slat of material. Sometimes it matched, sometimes it didn't in the back of the pants so that I could wear them. My t-shirts, my shirts, they had cigarette burns on the front with food stains all up and down the shirt. And this is how I walked around with a body odor that would have killed a zookeeper. I walked around with body odor. I walked around with no brushed teeth. I walked around like a moron. I was not a representative of God. I was a representative of the disease. And I let people know, hey, don't be like me. 
and I'm still alive to tell the tale. So always the dreamer, always the romantic, dreaming of the day when this would just get better on its own, never wanting to accept that I had to take action after action after action because I wanted it handed to me or I didn't want it because I had suffered enough. And one of the things that this disease did for me was it forced me into a situation where I couldn't buy my way out of it, talk my way out of it, con my way out of it, lie my way out of it. I had to do what everybody else was doing. And that is I had to do the work just like everybody else. And it matured me. Now, I'm very immature. Some of you who know me know that how immature I am. But the bottom line is, I'd be far less mature if that were not the case. I'm not the most mature guy on the block. I am, I am eternally seven. I am eternally seven. Trust me, I am a child. I am a child at heart. But whatever maturity I have comes from the fact that God honed me by forcing me to do all the work that everybody else around me was doing. And I had to put down my judgmental ego. I had to put down my tempestuous rage and put down my horrible fears and move forward in this program of recovery. <sighs> I'm on 38, you may think. You may think our illustration is too ridiculous, but is it? We who have been through the ringer, what is a ringer? Now, many of you are young. I see Ian is here today. And I see some, I see, I saw Stephanie. She still doesn't have a chair, but she's here too. And I see some other of you young people. And you may be thinking, what the heck is a ringer? Well, a ringer was part of a washing machine when I was a little boy. And when my mother would wash my clothes, she would wash them by hand. There was no automatic Maytag and Amana and all these other ones. There was no such thing. You took your clothes to the basement and you washed them on a washboard and you would wring them out. And the ringer would squeeze that garment so that it would yield up whatever water was inside of it. And my mother would hang the laundry out on the line. And if it was wintertime, she would hang it in the basement. And if it was in the summertime, she would hang the laundry outside. And there are some of you who don't remember that because that's not part of your youth. So when you see that word ringer, you have no idea what the heck that means. A ringer is, and you don't want to get your finger caught in there. Oh my God, you do not want to get your, your little finger in there because you're going to be screaming bloody murder if you do. Bloody murder if you do. So to the Ians and the Stephanies and whoever else is under a certain age, if you don't know what a ringer is, that's what it is. It's something you, you ring, you, you turn it, and it rings out the water from the garment. And I can see Ian laughing right now, but that's okay. The bottom line is, is that you, you don't want to be in the ringer because that means you're getting squished. All right, let's continue. 
You may think our illustration is too ridiculous, but is it we who have been through the ringer have to admit that if we substituted alcoholism for jaywalking, the illustration would fit us exactly. Now let's take a look again that in the jaywalker, the disease of jaywalking kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And what do we learn from Peabody? What do we learn from the common sense of drinking? Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. That's not AA information. That's not Oxford group information. That is Peabody information. What else do we learn from, from uh, Peabody? That the disease is progressive. So it's permanent, it's progressive. And what else do we learn? Especially his life illustrates it. If untreated by the recovery, the disease is 100% fatal. So you have a choice, as do I. You can die with the disease or from the disease. So to circumvent the inevitable question, what's the difference between dying with it and from it? Here is the answer to that question. If I die with the disease, that means I die having it, but it didn't kill me. Something else did. And if I die from the disease, that literally means that I'm, if I'm anorexic, I'm going to starve myself to death. Or if I'm me, I'm going to eat myself to death. And that is dying from the disease. So I can die with the disease or from the disease. But death by Dorito, death by Milk Dud is one of the most merciless deaths around. My mother died at 59 years of age. She had her leg amputated because of her diabetes. She had gangrene in one leg and then she had gangrene in the other leg, but she didn't live long enough for them to amputate. She died in the process. My mother died from this disease. My mother died at the mercy of food. My mother died never having lived. My mother was too scared to go out there and live. And my mother was mentally ill. My mother was, uh, my mother had three distinct personalities, a two-year-old or a three-year-old, two-year-old, a screaming, raving lunatic, or a pretty together person. You never knew what you were gonna get or how long it was gonna last. My father died. Uh, from a broken heart, uh, from the murders that occurred in Europe. He never got over that. Never, ever did he get over that. Number one. Number two, he was a smoker. And Max Grabowski was not going to be told what to do. He, he, he smoked himself to death and he ate himself to death. But he died of lung cancer. Emphysema turned into lung cancer. One Chesterfield after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. You couldn't take him to the movies because he couldn't smoke in there. You'd take him to the synagogue and he couldn't smoke in there. He'd be like a wild animal. You'd take him, you know, if he had to come to the school, you know, for like an assembly or, you know, sometimes if my mom was in the hospital, he had to come to parents' night. And he didn't know what these teachers were saying to him. He had no clue what they were saying to him. They're talking about this and they're talking. He doesn't know what the hell they were saying. He would come up to the, I got this years later, I was vending at a White Sox game and one of my old teachers was there and she told the story about my father. He came up to her and he says, 
is he behaving? And she said, yeah. And she, he, and he said to my teacher, he said to Mrs. Lamette, he don't behave, he gets this. Other than that, he didn't know what the hell they were talking about. He had no clue. Uh, but the bottom line is, is that that's what he said to my teacher, Mrs. Lamette. And he said, he don't behave, he gets this. That's what, she, that's what he said to my teacher. Anyway, however intelligent we may have been in other respects where alcohol has been involved, we have been strangely insane. It's strong language, but isn't it true? In the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous on page seven in Bill's story, it says, although I had been selfish and foolish, I had been ill bodily and mentally. It also goes on on page seven to say that where alcohol is concerned, although it remains strong in other respects, where alcohol is concerned, the will is amazingly weakened. Now there's 152 people on the line right now. First, thanks for coming. But there's 151 of you that are not me. And I would be willing to bet that if I could scroll through here and I can't do it now because I'm trying to think of what I'm going to say and it would look stupid if I'm scrolling through here. But if I got to know all of you, I would be astounded at some of the things you've accomplished in your life. We have Baylor University graduates who became teachers and singers in the church choir. We have nurses, doctors, lawyers, accountants, psychologists, tarantula keepers. We have all manner of people on this line who have accomplished amazing things. You've led amazing, amazing, enviable lives. And some of you have left your mark on others in a very profound way. But the one thing I'm going to assume you cannot do, and I'm going to assume it or you wouldn't be here, I'm going to assume, is you cannot control your food while you enjoy it. And you cannot enjoy it while you're controlling it. You are probably, maybe some of you are not, I don't know, but you are probably compulsive overeaters just like me. So where food is concerned, the will is amazingly weakened. And when I look at the story of the jaywalker and that his disease is permanent, progressive, and not yet fatal, but getting close, do I relate? You bet that I do. A man of 30 was doing a great deal of spree drinking. He made up his mind that until he had been successful in business, he would not touch another drop. For 25 years, he remained bone dry. Does this sound familiar? I hope it does. 25 years, he remained bone dry. Out came his carpet slippers in a bottle. And in four years, he was dead. What is the lesson here? 
What is the lesson of the jaywalker? That abstinence alone will not treat this disease because if abstinence alone were the treatment for this disease, when you went to the pay and way, when you went to the hospital, when you dieted for two weeks, you would have been cured because abstinence does not treat this disease. Sobriety does not treat alcoholism. Do you look at the words of the second step? Look at the wording. It says, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity, not abstinence or sobriety. Why is sanity so key? We're going to be talking a lot about that in the next chapter. But until we get there. Sanity has a higher end. It's higher ceiling. Sanity means that I will not only refrain from destroying myself with food with God's help. I can't do it on my own. Through God's grace and God's love and God's kindness, I will be able to stay abstinent for the rest of today. And we'll see about tomorrow. I don't know till I get there. But sanity is more all-encompassing than is abstinence or sobriety. Sane people do not kill themselves with food. Sane people do not write bad checks. Sane people do not weigh what I weighed. Sane people do not purge. Sane people do not exercise bulimia. Sane people do not use laxatives to get rid of the food that they just ate. They just don't do that. Sane people do not treat themselves like their worst enemy. They just don't. So be a dreamer, but understand you have to temper it with, what am I going to do to get there? It's okay to dream. What would life be without our dreams? What would life be without our fantasies? I mean, to a point, what would, what would life be without aspirations? It would be nothing. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be life. It would just be an existence. You got to have a little romance in you. You got to have a little dreamer in you. And that's okay. But the ticket to get where I want to get is work. Work. This is not a program for people who need it. It is not a program for people who want it. This is a program for people who do it. Okay, let's continue. I'm at the bottom of 38, last paragraph. Some of you are thinking, yes, what you tell us is true, but it doesn't fully apply. We admit we have some of these symptoms. In other words, I'm a little bit pregnant, but we have not gone to the extremes you fellas did, nor are we likely to. For we understand ourselves so well after what you've told us that such things cannot happen again. And what does the big book teach us repeatedly? That self-knowledge avails me nothing. Self-knowledge doesn't avail me something. It avails me nothing. That knowledge will not help me. It's what I do, not what I know or what I think. 
and I don't have to understand it. You know, every six days a week, if I'm lucky enough, I get up at two o'clock in the morning and by three o'clock in the morning, I'm out the door and I walk three miles. I do not understand the physiology, biology and chemistry of exercise. I do not understand it at all. I do not understand the release of certain things and gases and chemicals and the endorphins that are getting released in my little pea brain. And I don't get any of that. I don't know the first thing about it. I couldn't teach it. I don't know it. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you for the life of me all about the physiology of exercise but I reap the benefits because I take the action anyway. <clears throat> One of the things that I made note of this week on June the 23rd, there were two things that happened on June the 23rd that are notable in my life. Number one, on June the 23rd, 2002, I and my wife and I and child and dog spent our first night in 2002, June the 23rd in Scottsdale, Arizona in our new home, just a few miles from here. And it's a beautiful home and it still is a beautiful home. I'm sorry, I don't live there anymore. I wish I did. And I wish we lived there as a family, but we don't, and that's okay. And I remember that as now I am here 22, 21 years in Arizona. My only regret is I didn't move here many, many years before I did. If I wasn't a stubborn mule, I would have moved to Arizona a long time ago. And the other thing that happened on June the 23rd is it happens to be the birthday of a dear friend who's been dead for 25 years from this disease. And her name was Sherry. And she was a psychologist in Chicago, more appropriately, Evanston. She worked at Evanston Hospital. And she was a therapist there. She was a wonderful, wonderful lady. And she died from our disease, not with it, from it. And she was about 400 pounds at the time of her death. And she died in her condo at Marine Drive and Clarendon in Chicago. And it was a couple of days before anybody found her up there dead. And um, I miss her. And anybody that knew her misses her very much. Sherry B. And Sherry B was very angry about this disease, very angry because her father was a Holocaust survivor. She was very, very angry, full of rage. And she would not put the phone, the, I almost said put the phone down, put the food down, not the phone, but the food. She wouldn't put the food down until she understood why she was eating it. And we would beg her, Sherry, who cares why? Put it down. And she wouldn't do it. And about 25 years ago, much before her time, she died of this disease. I miss her. I know others do too. Too bad. Too bad for her. Too bad for us who knew her and loved her. What a wonderful person. And we miss her every day. I don't have to have an intimate understanding of everything. 
I don't have to have an intimate understanding of God to believe or be willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself. I don't need that understanding because for me, and this is strictly for me, it may not be for you. I'm not talking about you. I'm only talking about me. If God was big enough to, or small enough, excuse me, to understand, he wouldn't be big enough to solve my problem. I have a God that is beyond my feeble human understanding. There is so much that I will never understand. What I don't know would fill Wrigley Field and Saks Park and Soldier Field and have enough room to fill the United Center. I don't know so much that it is beyond comprehension what I don't know. And I am comfortable with that because that is the human condition. That is part of the human condition is not necessarily to know everything. There is one who has all power. May you find him now. And that power is what I call God. You can call it whatever you want to call it. If you're dyslexic, you can call it dog. If you want to call it God, but not have it be a deity, you can say the great outdoors. You can say group of drunks. My first higher power was Lake Michigan. What a mighty body of water. Oh my God. When it gets rolling, holy moly, is it unbelievably powerful. And most of the time it's calm and inviting. But every once in a while, it lets you know, this is not a day to mess with me. And those waves come in on an east wind and they will destroy anything in their path. It gets, she gets angry and she gets violent and she gets very, very uninviting and she rolls. And there are times when you can't even drive down Lakeshore Drive. There are times when you just can't go there because the water is coming up on the street and it becomes impassable. Not often, usually in November, but it does happen. Let's finish this paragraph. We have not lost everything in life through drinking and we certainly do not intend to. Thanks for the information. In other words, thanks for the information means kiss my tuchus. They don't want the information, get out of their way. So just to circumvent this, if you are in a situation where somebody does not want this information, give it to those who do. Let's do one more paragraphs, paragraph, and then we'll leave Fred for next week. I want to start with Fred next week. That may be, I'm at the top of 39, top of 39. That may be true of certain non-alcoholic people who, though drinking foolishly and heavily at the present time, are able to stop or moderate the heavy drinker because their brains and bodies have not been damaged as ours were. But the actual or potential alcoholic, with hardly an exception, will be absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. And that goes for me, too. 
There are people here out of the 155 left, you have enough information at your disposal in your brain and on your bookcase to be a nutritionist. You know everything about caloric content. If I want to know what the caloric content is of something, I don't have to Google it. I can ask one of you and you're right there with the information. Right there with the information. Man, you guys know your stuff. But based on that, can you stop? Can you cure yourself? Absolutely not. It is, this is a point we wish to emphasize and re-emphasize to smash home, not drive home, smash home upon our alcoholic readers as it has been revealed to us out of bitter experience Let's take another illustration. We're going to leave Fred for next week. Now, before I turn it back over to Maria or to whoever, Sue or I don't know who else, but before I do that, I'm just going to ask you a couple of things. First, no math. No way am I doing math. No way. Number two, 